The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Some of the people who fought with police also pleaded guilty early and also gave them their electronic devices. And yet they were given a different plea deal and they were forced to plead guilty. They were required to plead guilty to a more serious charge. So DOJ, I think, is sidestepping the fact that they made a moral judgment about what the appropriate punishment is for the people who showed up on January 6th and went into the Capitol. And they haven't defended that moral judgment, even though we've seen this media scrutiny, which is depressing for me, obviously, because it's easy for me to see, say, if only people paid more attention, then they'd better understand the decisions that their public officials are making and they could hold them accountable. Here we actually have all of the public opinion, but we don't get the explanations that I would hope we would see. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast. October 19th, 2021. Around 100 people have already pleaded guilty to crimes in connection with the January 6th attempted insurrection on the Capitol. What should we make of the plea deals thus far? Are they overly lenient? Are they what we might expect? I sat down for a live recording of the Lawfare podcast with Carissa Byrne-Hessick, the Rancell Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law, to talk about those January 6th plea deals. We talked through her reaction to the deals and also talked about plea bargaining in general, which is the subject of her new book, Punishment Without Trial, Why Plea Bargaining is a Bad Deal. It was a wide-ranging conversation, both about the mechanics of plea bargaining and about all things January 6th criminal prosecutions. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 19th, Carissa Hessick on January 6th plea bargains. I want to start in a similar place to where you started with your lawfare piece. So give us a sense of where the criminal prosecutions for January 6th have ended up so far, both in general and in broad terms, and also from a plea bargaining perspective. Sure. So I think one thing that's important to recognize about the January 6th cases is there are still people who haven't been arrested, right? We know that there are more people who went into the Capitol on January 6th than there have been arrests. I think the FBI is still trying to identify people. I think they are still trying to coordinate arrests. So that's sort of step one. And we're still at step one with a number of people. Step two is what happens after a person's arrested, right? They're going to, they're going to face criminal charges. And prosecutors in this case, they have a lot of options at their disposal because 
the the federal criminal law like state criminal laws it's it's very broad it's very deep there are lots and lots of different ways to charge the same criminal conduct so prosecutors here have a number of options some misdemeanor charges that they could bring, some felony charges that they could bring. And that's frankly just for the people who went into the Capitol because they wanted Congress to stop counting the Electoral College votes. For the people who did more than just that, right, the people who fought with police or the people who conspired beforehand to go in or who brought weapons or or people who caused property damage or who stole things, they're obviously, they have the potential of facing charges for all of that conduct as well. So there's the arrest stage, there's the charging stage where prosecutors have a lot of discretion, and then there's a decision that the defendant has to make about whether to try to fight these charges or whether to plead guilty. The vast majority of defendants in America plead guilty. So for years, everyone used to say, oh, 90% of, of defendants plead guilty, and then they got up to 95%. We've been looking at the data recently. It looks like we're at about 97% of people who are convicted in America are convicted because they plead guilty and not because they go to trial. And then we obviously haven't had any trials yet, but we have had about 100 guilty pleas at this point, and about a dozen or so of those folks, a little bit more than a dozen, have gone on to the, the last stage, which is sentencing. So we've seen some sentencing in these cases, but mostly where we are right now is we have more than 600 people who've been charged and 100 to 105 people who've pleaded guilty. And among those that have pleaded guilty, what have the charges tended to be like? The majority of people who've pleaded guilty have pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. There's this misdemeanor that you can use uh, for people who engage in, I guess you could call it sort of disorderly conduct at the Capitol and other, other places. It has all of these subsections associated with it. And one of the subsections is about illegally parading, picketing, or demonstrating. That's been the most if you could call it popular, the most popular crime to which people have been pleading guilty. It seems as though the folks at the Department of Justice have made a decision that they are going to use this as a way to dispose of most of these cases. I, I think it's safe to say that the Department of Justice is trying to appear as though they're being consistent across cases. That's not to say that they aren't in other situations, trying to be consistent, but here there's a lot of media attention. And so that's the crime that most people have pleaded guilty to who have pleaded guilty. Not everyone, though. There are a couple of people who are associated with criminal conspiracies with, with a group called the Oath Keepers. They've um, been pleading guilty to more serious felonies. It's pretty clear the government has an indictment that they've unsealed against a large number of individuals. They're clearly building a criminal case against those people. Those are clearly the cases that they're taking the most seriously. And then somewhat in between are people who aren't tied to the Oath Breakers, or the, sorry, the Oath Keepers, Freudian slip there, the Oath Keepers, but they're also not being lumped in with the folks who went into the Capitol, walked around, took selfies and left. These are people who scuffled with police. Those people, we've seen, I believe it's four at this point, at least four of those people plead guilty 
DOJ has insisted that they plead guilty to felony charges, but there's been variation. I don't think we see a clear pattern there. A couple of them pleaded guilty to one type of felony, another pleaded guilty to another, and then the fourth actually pleaded guilty to both felonies. So I think DOJ is individualizing those cases more than they are the misdemeanor cases. And just as a means of rough estimate, what percentage of people are ending up pleading to misdemeanors versus felonies? It's it, hard to say for sure, but roughly. Oh, of the folks we've seen so far? Yeah, yeah. I think the last time I counted, it was it was 60 of them just pleaded to that one particular misdemeanor. We've only got a few felonies, though, so far. I mean, a dozen at most. And I, I don't know. It's not even clear to me that it's that it's that many. It's these more simple cases that they're that they're clearly pleading out first, whether that's because the Department of Justice is moving on those cases quickest or if it's because those defendants are the most eager to have their their cases taken care of. I don't I don't think we have that information. So we'll get back to the January 6th side of things in a bit, but I want to talk a bit about plea bargaining itself. So in addition to, to writing for Lawfare this week, you also had a book come out about plea bargaining. So I think it maybe a helpful place to start would be talk to us a bit about the thesis of your book as it pertains to plea bargaining. Sure. So just I'm sure most people know this, but just so that we're clear about what I mean by by plea bargaining. So the moment a defendant decides whether to plead guilty or not guilty is an important moment in a criminal case. If a defendant decides to plead guilty, then they move right to sentencing. And sometimes defendants will just decide to do that. They'll be like, hey, I did this. I just want to get this over with. I'm going to just plead guilty. But more often, defendants will engage in negotiation with the prosecutor before they plead guilty or their or their lawyer will. They'll engage in a negotiation and they'll get something in return for the decision to plead guilty. So here, for example, in these January 6 cases, a number of defendants are pleading guilty to a misdemeanor, even though their behavior would have satisfied at least one of the felonies, probably more than one, but at least one felony that's on the books. So what these defendants are getting is they're getting the benefit of a charge bargain, where they're either getting convicted of a lesser offense or they're having some counts dropped from their indictment. Some of them have been indicted on a felony and a couple of misdemeanors. They're only having to plead guilty to one count. That's a common type of plea bargain, a charge bargain. Another com- common type of bargain, though, is uh, has to do with sentencing. So instead of messing around with the criminal charges, the defendant and the prosecutor will agree that the prosecutor will either recommend a particular sentence to the sentencing judge or they'll actually enter into an agreement about what the appropriate sentence is, and the judge can either accept the guilty plea with that sentence or have to reject the guilty plea altogether. So that's sort of what plea bargaining is. And I think that plea bargaining, I understand why we have it. I understand why it's very attractive to prosecutors and defendants. But I think that it's really warped the criminal justice system. It's created a number of problems. One problem that it's created is it creates an incentive for people in Congress to pass a lot of laws with really harsh punishments because then it it creates leverage for prosecutors to get people to plead guilty. I imagine that a number of the people who are pleading guilty to going into the Capitol on January 6th are not pleading guilty because they feel 
remorseful. They're pleading guilty because they want to avoid the possibility of a felony conviction. And if prosecutors didn't have that leverage, I imagine many more of them would insist on going to trial because if they were convicted at trial, the punishment wouldn't be that severe for this particular charge. So that leverage that it gives to prosecutors creates an incentive for for lawmakers to enact overlapping laws and laws with stiff sentences. There was an attempt at sentencing reform a few years ago when it came to drug cases, and a number of people were pointing out that the federal drug laws are really harsh. Some senators were talking about this in in the committee, and Senator Grassley, uh, who was on that committee, said actually uh, he thinks that the mandatory minimums are working the way they're supposed to because most of the people who are eligible for these mandatory minimums don't end up serving them. They end up pleading guilty to a lesser crime and cooperating with prosecutors to help them prosecute more people. So he said these these punishments are, you know, they're acting the way that we want them to. We don't enact these laws because we think these are the right punishments for people to serve. We enact these laws because we don't want prosecutors to have to bring people to trial. That's really terrible. There are a few other things too. I I, I don't want to I don't want to belabor the point. A lot of them have to do with what people are permitted to waive. For example, if you have police who engage in misconduct, normally defendants would be able to do something about that. If I'm on the street and police, for no good reason, you know, let's say for a good reason they're arresting me, but during the course of the arrest they beat me up and they shouldn't have beaten me up. That was inappropriate, excessive force. Normally I'd be able to bring a lawsuit for that, but what would happen and what does happen most of the times is the prosecutor will say, hey, look, we'll let you plead guilty to some lesser charge as long as you agree not to sue the officers as well. So you get to negotiate over all sorts of things that aren't necessarily what we think of when we think of criminal trials. So the whole point of the of the book is to point out that in accepting plea bargaining as the default way to deal with our cases and to say that we want our system to be efficient and to avoid trials, what we've really done is we've created a system of case processing instead of a system that's designed to get at the truth and a system that's designed to do justice. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, but I think maybe the best place to start is why is that you've alluded to this a few different times, but why is this a system that the prosecutors might look favorably upon? What are the advantages of plea bargaining for a prosecutor? Oh, there are huge advantages to prosecutors. There are huge advantages to defendants and to judges. Everybody on the case level can often benefit from plea bargaining. So from the prosecutor's perspective, it's a lot of work to prepare a case to go to trial. And you might lose. So what plea bargaining does is it allows you to hedge your bets. Maybe you think you can convict someone of armed robbery, but you might not be able to. Maybe you're a little concerned about the reliability of your witness. So you get the defendant to agree to plead guilty to simple robbery. And then you have your conviction. The person's going to spend at least some time in jail. And you can probably plea bargain a dozen cases in a day, but it would have taken you a couple of days to try that armed robbery case. So prosecutors, like a lot of a lot of civil servants, are often overworked and under-resourced. And so this is a way for them to do their job and to make sure that they're sort of dealing with the caseload pressures that they deal with. 
And so, so that's on a case by case basis, but as a system, right? So someone might make the argument as people do make the argument that plea bargaining is something that say allows the, the criminal justice system to function, right? Like without, without the rate at which we engage in plea bargaining, the whole system would, would fall apart. I wonder what you would say to that. Yeah, that's just not true. Like it's, it's like we can look at the numbers and we know that it's not true. Can we plea bargain a hundred percent of the cases that come through the door? We can't. We haven't spent enough money on prosecutors or judges or public defenders to do that. But the idea that we have to plea bargain at the rate that we do now just ignores the fact that the rate has gone up significantly. So there was a ju- there's a judge, um, a federal judge in West Virginia, and he got pretty annoyed with the plea bargaining practices that he was seeing a couple years ago. And so he went to the administrative office of the courts and he got a bunch of data about the number of trials, the number of criminal trials being held, the number of prosecutors and the number of judges. And he showed that back in 1990, there were almost 8,000 trials, 8,000 criminal trials being held in the United States, in, in the federal court. And since 1990, we've hired a lot more prosecutors, we've hired a lot more judges. And yet, in I think the last year he had data for was 2016, we had fewer than 2,000 criminal trials. So as our capacity to try cases went up, we only tried 25% of the cases that we used to try. I think that that's something, that's something to really keep in mind. Maybe we couldn't try every single case, but we could try a lot more cases than we're trying now and only be back to the levels that we were at 30 years ago. So I understand that people are concerned about efficiency, but we've actually made the system more, far more efficient than it needs to be. So people say this actually about the January 6th cases. They say, well, we couldn't possibly bring all of these people to trial. And the answer is, of course we could have. I mean, we've arrested 600, 650 people. That's a lot of people. But the idea that we don't have capacity for 650 trials is, is simply wrong. So what are the reasons that you know plea bargaining has become has developed such an increased role in the criminal justice system are there right has there been a sustained effort to make it a bigger part of of how things work both either at the federal level or at the state level is it just sort of a coincidence of factors coming together to make this happen what's your diagnosis it's probably a few different reasons i mean one is if you give prosecutors leverage to get plea bargains they're probably going to use it the second reason is that sometimes a plea bargain is the only way that a defendant can get a lenient sentence. And so it's in, it's in the defendant's interest to have a system of plea bargaining where they can get more flexibility. Even before plea bargaining was as popular as it is now, judges were really unforgiving of those defendants who insisted on going to trial. So they would... <laughs> threatened defendants in open court that if they insisted on going to trial, that they would get a longer sentence than if they pleaded guilty. In fact, the the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers put out a report just a couple of years ago where they showed that on average, criminal defendants in federal court, they serve sentences three times as long if they insist on going to trial than if they're willing to plead guilty. So there's a lot of pressure to plead guilty. After a while, I think the the pressure just morphed into an expectation. If people think you're going to plea bargain a case, then you probably plea bargain a case the same way that like if people think you have to wear a 
a button-down shirt in a professional situation, your shirt looks very nice. You're going to wear a button-down shirt in a professional situation because that's the expectation. We all conform to expectations. And so the more people do things, the more likely they are to keep doing them. So I, I, I'm curious partially to hear too about the your process researching this, right? So one thing that that we encounter, I think, running a site that deals in some reasonable sense with criminal trials is that plea bargains are comparatively much more difficult to track than other stages in the criminal process. I'm, I'm curious to hear a bit about your process researching for the book. My process researching the book was completely different than my process researching the essay for Lawfare, because I have to say the January 6 cases have been an absolute joy in that the Department of Justice has been very transparent about what's going on. And because there's so much media attention, it's very easy for me to get access to, I mean, DOJ has all of the plea documents up on their website right now for the January 6 cases in searchable formats. It's amazing. That's not the typical life of a criminal justice researcher. We're desperate to find out information and it's often not available. In fact, the number that I gave you earlier when I said that plea bargains are up to 97%, I should have qualified that. I should say the data that we have suggests that 97% of defendants pleaded guilty rather than proceeding to trial because we only have data from the federal system and fewer than, than 30 states. We don't know what the plea bargaining rate is in those 20 other some odd states. It's just not really available. And so in trying to write this book, it was very difficult to write about the history of plea bargaining because however hard it is to get information about current plea bargaining practices, it's nearly impossible to get historical information. Every once in a while, you'll have a researcher who'll sit down and literally go through the archives in a city or a county and find information. And so because of that, we have a study on plea bargaining from a random county in Massachusetts in the 1800s. We have a study from Los Angeles in the late 1800s and early 1900s. We have a little bit of information from, from New York City. But this sort of information is very difficult to come by. And I'll say one of the, one of the fascinating aspects of the history of plea bargaining is that Plea bargaining was discovered by the legal community in the 1920s and 30s as people started to, there was a, a push in American cities to figure out what was going on in the criminal justice system. And they would hire sometimes law professors, sometimes uh, prominent attorneys to come in and conduct a study. And they found out that plea bargaining was happening in the trial courts. They didn't know because that's how opaque this process is. The thing about plea bargaining is it all happens behind closed doors, the negotiation, and then the defendant comes in and suddenly pleads guilty, and, and they agree on what the story is, so there's no pushback. But the fact that, uh, that the American legal community didn't even realize that plea bargaining had been happening, and they don't really know for how long it had been happening until they decided to conduct these studies of their local criminal justice systems. I think that's, I'm not sure I can come up with sort of a better illustration of how difficult it is to find these things out. Sort of intuitive, but what's the downside of that, right? Like what's, what's lost when the criminal justice process is so opaque? Yeah. So 
So do you mind if I do you mind if I ask you where do you live? So we're in Washington D.C. Oh, all of us lawfare are folk. Are you in the district? You you live in the in district. the district. Oh, yeah. my example is not going to work for you because you live in Washington D.C. and so criminal prosecutions in Washington D.C. are handled by the U.S. Attorney's Office. If you lived not in Washington, D.C., but in, in 45 of the other 50 states, I would have asked you what the name was of your elected local prosecutor. You might have known. You might not have known. A lot of Americans don't know the name of their local prosecutor. Many of them don't realize that their local prosecutor is elected. Even those of us who do know that our local prosecutor is elected, we know very little about what those prosecutors do. We rarely know what their office policies are, and we rarely know what sorts of bargains they're giving out to people who are accused of crimes. So one of the stories that I tell in the book is about a judge in Ohio who started noticing that it looked as though people in the courthouse who'd been accused of serious sex crimes were getting what appeared to be unusually favorable plea deals. And he had someone look into it and found out that it was actually incredibly common for someone who was charged with rape to be pleaded down to a simple assault charge or someone who was charged with sexually assaulting a child be pleaded down to something that's like interfering with like parental rights or something like that. These people were getting sentences of probation or maybe six months in jail and aside from murder or terrorism, sex crimes are probably the, the the category of crimes that Americans take most seriously and try to get the most punishment for. And the people in Ohio had, I'm going to assume, no idea that this is how their local prosecutor was disposing of those cases. Now, one problem is the prosecutor might have thought he or she couldn't convict these people. That's a separate question and we should probably grapple with the problems of jury trials, the problems that people have in, in you know, getting victims of, of sex crimes and sexual harassment to be taken seriously. But I don't think that anyone thinks that, that people who are accused of serious crimes like that should spend little or no time in jail. And by the way, if these people are innocent, they obviously shouldn't have had to plead guilty to anything. But they weren't sorting that out in Ohio. They were just letting these cases plead out to, to resolutions that I think no one should think is appropriate. But because of the way plea bargaining works, I assume the local media couldn't tell what was happening. And so the local voters weren't informed. And so they weren't able to tell their elected officials, you shouldn't be handling these cases like that. Like we give democratic control. Sometimes it's indirect, like what you have in D.C., I suppose you and everybody else votes for president and that helps figure out how you guys are going to have your local criminal justice issues decided. But for me, when I vote in my local election for district attorney, I'm doing that because I, I'm supposed to help control the enormous power that they have in the sentencing decision, the sentencing recommendations that they make, the plea bargaining decisions that they make, and the initial charging decisions that they make. But the truth is, Plea bargaining hides so much of that from public view that Americans just aren't in a position to know what's going on, let alone to act as sort of a democratic check on it. So this is a, a good segue to the January 6th context, which, as you say, is sort of the opposite of this, right? There's a complete oversaturation of coverage of it. You can fire up your Twitter feed and see people posting 
plea bargains every single day. I'm curious what you make, first of all, of the general, how does the the difference in attention that people are paying to the January 6th stuff inflect the coverage of it versus you know, your, your whole, the whole other subset of your research? Yeah. So I'm really glad that, that there's been so much coverage of these cases. The reaction to the coverage, I think, confirms my suspicions that people don't have a good appreciation of what happens regularly in criminal cases. They're shocked that people are being allowed to plead guilty to misdemeanors when their conduct seems to have pretty clearly, you know, risen to the level of a felony. And it's like, yep, that's that's what plea bargaining will do for you. So that's that's been really helpful. I think it's possible that that some of the comments by judges expressing skepticism about some of the decisions the Department of Justice has, has made, it's hard to know what to make of those if the judges are sort of doing it for the cameras or if or if the ju- judges are maybe just more used to having a back and forth with the attorneys in their courtroom and they maybe don't appreciate that it might be interpreted to be them pushing back, it's hard to say. But I will say this, I have been disappointed that the Department of Justice hasn't done more to explain the judgments that they've made. So when they've been asked by judges in these misdemeanor cases about why it is that they've decided to bring only misdemeanor charges against these defendants, they've always given an answer that sort of sounds inefficiency, right? They're like, well, you know, the person pleaded guilty early. They cooperated right away by giving us their electronic devices. But that's not the only reason that they're getting those specific plea deals. Some of the people who fought with police also pleaded guilty early and also gave them their electronic devices. And yet they were given a different plea deal and they were forced to plead guilty. They were required to plead guilty to a more serious charge. So DOJ, I think, is sidestepping the fact that they made a moral judgment about what the appropriate punishment is for the people who showed up on January 6th and went into the Capitol And they haven't defended that moral judgment, even though we've seen this media scrutiny, which is depressing for me, obviously, because it's easy for me to see, say, if only people paid more attention, then they'd better understand the decisions that their public officials are making and they could hold them accountable. Here we actually have all of the public opinion, but we don't get the explanations that I would hope we we would see. And is there other parts of this that you see and you, you think are sort of strange or raise eyebrows for you other than the, the lack of willingness to, to really lean into explaining? Is it, are there patterns that, that seem off to you or seem surprising? I was a little surprised by the DC Circuit's decision to push back on the bail decisions that were being made. This is a few months ago. So just explain, I think, for people what that was. Sure. When the government arrests someone, there's a decision to be made about whether that person needs to stay in jail before their trial or whether they can be released and go home. And it's it's not always a very straightforward decision. Sometimes they have to post bail, you know, sort of pay some money or put up collateral to ensure that they'll come back. There can be questions about whether they have a previous criminal record. But the decision is basically whether to detain them prior to trial or whether to let them go home and, and, and stay with their families um, until they either plead guilty or go to trial. And in recent decades, the decision to keep people in jail has been made more often. This has been documented by, by a number of different researchers. 
And uh, people are probably kept in jail too often. They could be let go home more often than they are. And when people are are kept in jail before trial, there's a lot of good research showing that they're much more likely to plead guilty. They're also, as you might imagine, more likely to suffer real economic harms, lose their jobs, you know, have their families suffer real hardship. Um, they're actually even more likely to be convicted at trial, usually because they can't help in their defense. In any event, the point that I was simply trying to make was the D.C. Circuit, when the trial court judges in the January 6th cases were detaining some but not all of the defendants after they'd been arrested, the D.C. Circuit stepped in and told them that they needed to basically be more careful about who they were keeping in jail. And because of that, a number of January 6th defendants went home who I do wonder if this weren't the January 6th cases, whether those people would have been allowed to go home or not. As I said, I think judges are usually very quick to keep people in jail, too quick to keep people in jail. I was glad to see the D.C. Circuit say that. I hope that that opinion influences cases that aren't about people storming the Capitol to try to keep an election from taking effect. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. 
And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you would referenced in, in your first answer about the January 6th plea bargains that there's been some dialogue between prosecutors and judges, right? Is I'm curious to hear a bit more about that. And also, to what extent is that normal, right? So what what role do judges usually have in overseeing plea bargains? At which different points can they intervene? And is this, you know, when you see Judge Sullivan on the D.C. District Court, you know, opining on, on the merits of what's going on here, does that strike you as, as strange compared to what you've seen in other contexts or, or par for the course? Yeah. So Judge Sullivan is a little bit of a special case. I think those people who know much about Judge Sullivan, they'll, they'll remember he was the, the judge in the Michael Flynn case. Before that, though, he was the judge in a in a case involving Alaska Senator Ted Stevens, who was convicted, and it was later found out he was convicted um, in part because uh, the government failed to turn over evidence that they were supposed to. I think that that's led Judge Sullivan to have maybe a more skeptical attitude towards the Department of Justice than some of his colleagues. Getting back to your to the meat of your question, though, about the judges sort of having a back and forth with the prosecutors and what power they have and how unusual it is. It's funny, I think when a lot of people talk about the American criminal justice system right now, they talk about how powerful prosecutors are. The truth is, judges are incredibly powerful. It's just that they don't always exercise that power. A lot of judges are very comfortable deferring to prosecutors. And in fact, when I talk to some of them, sometimes they'll say, you know, the prosecutor knows more about a plea bargained case than I do. 
So I want to listen to his or her recommendation. If the case goes to trial, then I have a chance to see all of the evidence and I'm in a better position to make decisions. But if it's just the parties negotiating behind the scenes, I have to pay a lot more attention to what they're recommending. I suppose that makes sense. But I always get a little bit queasy when I hear the judge talking about deferring to the parties because this isn't a civil lawsuit where at the end of the day, all that happens is some money changes hands. The result of a criminal case is a conviction. And sometimes that means somebody goes to jail. You can only get a criminal conviction if a judge is willing to sign off on it. So the idea that the judge is just deferring to the parties is a little disturbing, especially because there are rules that the judge is supposed to follow in terms of making sure that the that the plea is actually factually correct, the defendant wasn't pressured into those to it, and all of those sorts of things. And judges are empowered to reject plea bargains. They can. They have the right under the, the federal rules of criminal procedure. And they do sometimes. Unfortunately, they only seem to do it if they think that the deal is too lenient, right? So this somewhat famously happened in a white collar, it's one of the Enron cases. The judge was like, no, no, this is... The guy needs to spend more time in jail than that. And you see that every once in a while. But more often, the judges are willing to to let the parties negotiate, and then they'll sort of follow what the parties want to do. But they clearly have a role that they can play. And I think it's really just a question of whether they do play it. Personally, I think it is a good idea for judges to get prosecutors to answer questions about the decisions that they're making. If nothing else, it gives us some insight into why they've made those sorts of decisions. But it can also help inform the judge about whether they want to accept the plea bargain or not. If they have concerns, they should most definitely be asking about those concerns because they have an independent responsibility. So two quick questions to wrap before we open up to audience. So one of them is you'd referenced earlier that you have some hope that Parts of the attention that are being paid to the January 6th, the handling of the January 6th cases will bleed out beyond the January 6th context, right? And the the reality that there's so many people now focused on this huge set of criminal investigations might have some sort of further reaching impact on the way that people think about plea bargains, maybe, or, or other stages of the process. What are what are the things that you're most looking out for in that sense? Like what would, to you, what would be the best possible lessons to be learned here? Oh, the lesson that I really hope that people learn is that a case is really, really likely to get plea bargained. If somebody gets charged, they're almost certainly going to plead guilty. And that we should be paying attention to what that guilty plea looks like. Because until people understand that when they you know, when they ask their state rep to pass a new law with a mandatory minimum, that doesn't mean people are going to spend that time in jail. I think until we understand that, we're going to continue to have the very broken system that we do. So that's that's one thing. I just want them to understand it. And then the second thing is I want them to start asking questions. Because maybe we do think that we need a system that's efficient. But if we want to have a system that's efficient, we might want to think about a way to build a system that's both efficient, but also more just. And then I guess the last thing that I'd want them to ask is, if we can't afford to try all of the cases that come through the system, maybe we should think about either A, funding the system better, 
or B, bringing fewer cases into it. Because as it stands right now, I think most people, when they think, oh, you know, somebody was charged with a crime, this person's going to plea bargain, they're thinking about pretty serious crimes, right? They're thinking about the sorts of felonies that I teach my students about when I teach criminal law. But the truth is, those are the minority of cases. There's like maybe a million felony cases a year, which don't get me wrong, that's bad. We shouldn't have a million felony cases. But then we also have like 12 or 13 misdemeanor million misdemeanor cases. And we could really think about whether there might be a different way to deal with those problems. Maybe there's a more efficient way to deal with behavior we don't like than trying to funnel them through a system that we don't really fund very well and that we don't really understand very well either. I think one thing that that I've learned, at least trying to watch all this, and I think other people probably learned too in in the January 6th context, is it can be a bit difficult to to get a holistic picture of what's going on, right? You get this trickle of cases, you see people, you know, you'll see tweets about them, or you'll see one-off news stories about them. I'm curious as you track what's going on here, what are the patterns that you're looking out for, right? Like what are the what are the indicators that you're looking out for in the plea bargaining context specifically that'll give you sort of a sense of, of where things are headed, of whether, you know, are we going to see more serious sentences at, at plea bargaining stages or, or other things like that? Do you mean for the January 6th cases or more? Yeah, January? yeah. For, no, no, for January 6th. For January 6th? Yeah, I'm really going to, um, I'm really paying close attention to how many people are being asked to plead guilty to felony charges. And I'm also paying attention to are there cases that stand out in the misdemeanor context where it seems a little, it seems as though maybe some people maybe should have been asked to plead to something a little bit more serious. So I'm thinking in particular about the, the woman, Dawn Bancroft, who I wrote about in the essay, who, yes, she went to the Capitol and she walked around with her friend and then she left. But before she left, she recorded a video of herself saying, you know, something like, we came, we did our part, we wanted to shoot Nancy Pelosi in the brain, but we couldn't find her. I have to say, I feel differently about Don Bancroft than I do about some of the other people who went into the Capitol and who walked around and who left. Because even if she thinks that, to the extent that she's linking violence against particular people who have to carry out the business of our government with her decision to go in there, that suggests to me that maybe she's a good candidate for a more serious charge than illegally parading through the Capitol. So I'm paying attention to those sorts of things. The The strange thing about the criminal justice system is in being fair to people, it means trying to treat them consistently, but treating them consistently doesn't necessarily mean treating them the same. Sometimes treating people the same is to actually be unfair because somebody did something worse than the other person. So I am interested to see the extent to which DOJ is making finer distinctions between the people who came in but maybe didn't assault police officers or the people who came in but maybe like not with their like armed squad of Oath Keepers or something like that because they could do that. I hope I've made clear throughout our conversation today DOJ has the resources to handle these cases. They're making an affirmative choice to plead them out. So we are going to move to audience questions. We have two in the chat. The first one is about the bail stage. So curious if you can discuss the stats on the disparity between those released on their own recognizance and those held, right? Are there 
certain states that are more likely to recommend release than others? Are there are there any broader trends in in how different jurisdictions handle different defendants? Oh, for bail? Yes. No. There are huge differences when it comes to bail. And I should say, too, I'm not an expert on bail. I'm happy to refer you to some experts. Uh, Shima Baradaran Boffman at the University of Utah, I interview her for my book. Bail policy really depends on which state that you're in. And it's in flux, right? There was a big lawsuit down in Houston a few years ago because they were just keeping a lot of poor misdemeanor defendants in jail because they couldn't pay, which they're not supposed to be able to do, but it happens a lot. There's a big policy fight right now going on in New York because New York State a couple of years ago reformed its bail laws to make it more difficult to keep people in jail pending trial. Police officers uh, are spending an awful lot of time telling everybody that the spike in violence in New York is attributable to the bail law, and that's false. And it's so false and it's been so thoroughly discredited that I have to wonder why the police officers are showing up and lying about this. Because at this point, the statistics, I mean, even the New York Post published an article explaining that that's not true. So I think the problem with bail is you'll get one high profile case or you'll get even false reports that people are unsafe because folks who are getting arrested are being let out onto the street the next day. The truth is, like, just because you've been arrested, it doesn't mean you actually committed a crime. And even if you did, we're not supposed to punish you until after we've convicted you. So I think we just have to change our attitude towards bail. And that I don't have the stats in front of me. They also change not only from state to state, but courthouse to courthouse. Sometimes they can have their own sort of bail policies that are implemented through the magistrate judges. Super interesting. So Shannon writes here that there are some reports that that Attorney General Garland thinks that going hard on the January 6th defendants would radicalize them further. She's wondering, would the opposite be true? And there's a follow-up question from someone here. Isn't, you know, basic principles of deterrence would, would cut against that? Yeah. So I don't know whether sending someone to jail radicalizes them, but we have pretty good reason to think that every time we send someone to jail we've probably increased the chances of them committing more crimes in the future. So there was a study actually recently done, I think it was up in Massachusetts, uh, where there had been some changes in decisions about who went to jail and who didn't go to jail. And the truth is going to jail is horribly disruptive to people's lives. I mean, they lose their jobs. Sometimes they lose custody of their kids. They can get evicted or lose their houses. And then they come out of jail, and it's incredibly difficult to bounce back from that. A lot of private employers won't hire people who have a criminal history. And so it's not that then they have to, like, turn to a life of crime and start robbing banks to make ends meet. And it's more that, like, most of us don't commit crimes because, like, we have relatively stable lives and we have a lot to lose. And we're too busy, you know, we're too busy cutting the grass and driving our kids to soccer to to go out and and get in trouble. So I don't know whether they would have been more radicalized to send these folks to jail, but it's certainly true that they might have ended up committing other crimes, right? They might get a DUI or something like that. But the truth is that's that's true with just about everybody. And and frankly what's kind of interesting about the January 6 cases is the federal system except in DC they mostly specialize in sort of 
more serious crimes. They're rarely going out and, and charging people with misdemeanors. That's just not what they do. They leave that sort of enforcement to the states. So I'm glad to hear that Merrick Garland is thinking about the, the subsequent consequences of putting people in jail. Um, he's certainly right to do that. Is it true that more people are going to go storm the Capitol if we don't put these ones in jail? I don't think so. I don't think people are going to say, oh, I'll only get probation. I won't get 30 days in jail. And so I'm going to go disrupt Congress in the future. That's just not usually how, how people think about these things. Don't get me wrong. It happens every once in a while. If you know your parking ticket's only going to be $15 as opposed to $50, you might sort of risk the parking ticket. But when it comes to things like criminal convictions, people are actually much more concerned about getting caught than they are about the amount of, the amount of punishment that they'll receive. Glad to hear him say it. I wish he'd framed it more in terms of the instability that it would bring to their lives rather than the idea that they would be radicalized. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting follow-up question here in the chat from someone. So in the January 6th context, to some extent, regardless of the crimes themselves that these people are pleading guilty to are not themselves political crimes, right? Like they're, trespassing is not a political crime. But, you know, there's some political motivation behind the behavior there, right? Is Does the logic differ in this context, right? That So, you know, you just talked about a parking ticket, right? Like to what extent can you extrapolate that to a situation where the chief motivation is a political motivation? I don't know, right? I always, so look, I think it's a smart question. I don't have a good answer for you because for, for a couple of reasons. The first reason I don't have a good answer for you is we understand so little about crime. We don't really understand why people do and don't commit crimes very well. We can exclude some reasons, but we don't have a good understanding. If we had a better understanding of why people commit crimes, we'd probably have fewer crimes. So that's first of all. Second of all, I think it's so tempting to think about these people who were arrested on January 6th and think that we have an archetype of who they are in our minds. But I'm always, when asked sort of to speculate about things, I always try to take the situation and put it in a slightly different situation. Like if, if somebody was committing a crime um, of terrorism, that's not, and yes, I know some people say January 6th was an act of terrorism, but let's say it's you sort of the more mundane terrorism, right? Somebody wants to blow up a gas station or something like that to show support for a foreign group. I don't think we would ever have a conversation about whether putting them in prison would radicalize them further because we would say they've been radicalized. I think the people who went to the Capitol on January 6th, I don't know whether they were radicalized or not. They certainly did something illegal. Some of them did it because they believe something that's false. And some of them continue to believe that false thing to this day. And actually, tens of millions of Americans agree with them about that false thing that this election was stolen. So I am concerned about that. Whether it sort of makes these folks into a martyr as like some members of Congress like show up at the D.C. jail and insist that they need to see them, I don't know. I don't understand the politics enough of this to, to have a good sense of how it plays out. If we treat it as a serious crime, does that affect how people see it? If we don't treat it as a serious crime, does that affect how people see it? I don't think we're all that good at predicting how people will or won't understand things. I think it's a hard question. I'd like people to talk about it some more. 
But I also wonder, like, if we shouldn't take that same sort of empathy that we feel here, oh, these people made an error, are we going to convince them that our government is corrupt or doesn't care about them by treating them harshly? I think that's the question at that level of generality is always present in the criminal justice system. And so as our last question here, we, we have someone who asks about, about the probation system, right? So the probation system not particularly well managed necessarily. Um, and curious, she's curious how the general, the, the general management struggles within the probation system might weigh on the question of whether to release Jan 6 defendants on probation, right? Like, is it, is it dangerous to release someone on probation where there's, you know, a chance that maybe they, they won't be monitored particularly stringently? Yeah. I mean, I think the question is, how do you think, what sort of monitoring do we expect them to have? I mean, a lot a lot of times probation is just keeping people out of trouble. It's not that we really think that they're going to, that they have a specific crime in mind and we're trying to prevent it. It's more like we make sure they're still at their jobs. We drug test them every once in a while. Here, this is strange because a lot of these people do have jobs. Some of them own their own businesses. We don't think that they necessarily have drug problems and that's what led to their criminality. I think actually... To the extent that people are are thinking about monitoring these particular defendants, that's the stuff that might seem really political. I mean, how are you going to monitor them? Are you going to are you going to try to monitor their social media and what they're saying on social media? That that sounds pretty disturbing to me. I mean, do we do that stuff sometimes with some defendants, like the folks who are accused of of sex crimes? We like tell them they're not allowed to like go on the internet or use social media. Like, yeah, we do, and that's got its own problems associated with it. But here, I think that the monitoring that would take place, you know, to some extent, the fact that they're going to have to continue to remain employed and the fact that they're going to have to drug test and those sorts of things, is it going to put a little bit of stress on the probation systems? It might. I mean, these folks are scattered across the country. They'll be supervised in their own own home districts. So, I guess I'd come back to saying I'm 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 a little bit more skeptical about claims that the federal government's going to be overwhelmed by these cases because I think the government actually has, unlike a lot of state and local governments, the federal government is pretty well resourced. And we are going to leave it there just inside an hour. Carissa, thank you so much for doing this. It was my pleasure. It was great to talk to you guys. Thank you guys for the questions. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineers this week were Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo and Bryce Clem. The podcast is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell, and your music is performed by Sophia Yan. If you listen to this and think that you might want to start coming to live recordings of the Lawfare Podcast and other Lawfare Live events, please consider subscribing to our Patreon page and becoming a material supporter of Lawfare. That will get you access to these events, ad-free podcasts, and more. As always, thanks so much for listening.